fruit of the Spirit is love, uh, specifically something we call neighbor love or a horizontal love, a love of others, a love um, of others, especially those we disagree with or those we are divided against or love for our enemies. This is central to the teaching of Jesus. Uh, last week, we began a new series on uh, the fruit of the Spirit and um, kind of introduced kind of where we were going last week. If you missed it, I encourage you to check it out. It was all right. And uh, I think it was okay. I don't know. Who knows? But um, today we're, we're kicking off with the first fruit, and that is love. Uh, we're going to experiment with something with this series to give parents and families something simple to uh, talk about each week in regards to the fruit of the Spirit. And so to you parents out there with children, um, I want to encourage you this week to take time around the dinner table, if you can, to uh, share a meal and to strategically and intentionally talk about ways that your family can show or demonstrate love to others. The Bible's full of stories that point us to God's love. We see that in the way Moses leads God's people. We see it in Jesus' parable of the Good Samaritan. We see it in uh, the generosity from the church, the early church in the book of Acts, you know, predominantly in Acts 2 and, and key chapters like that. Um, but some questions you could ask one another around the family time is to ask one another three questions. The first would be, how do you feel most loved? Uh, the second would be, how can we as a family love others? And uh, the third question would be, how do you feel and see God's love? Those are three really easy questions, parents, you can engage your children with. We'll have them um, in this uh, video description and pinned in a comment so you can go and copy and paste them into your phone and, and use them. Um, I had a really good sermon prepared for you on love this week. It was um, a good survey of what love is and what love does. I planned on recording it on Thursday morning, and uh, something came up and I couldn't do it. And I thought I'd record it later on the day, on Thursday, and God had something else for me to give my time and attention to, which was lovely. And so um, I had planned on uh, recording it on Friday. Well, early Friday morning I woke up, a little after midnight, and couldn't sleep. And every now and then I'll have these moments where it seems like the Lord kind of taps me on the shoulder, wakes me up and says, hey, get out of bed and come spend time with me in the quiet of the night. Uh, as I begrudgingly spent time with the Lord outside of my bed at 1, 2, and 3 a.m. early Friday morning, um, I had this really overwhelming sense that the message I had planned, which is you know right here, um, wasn't exactly the word that the Lord had for us. It was good, it was biblical, it was great, um, but it wasn't necessarily his prophetic word for me and for you, for his church, for his people. And uh, something I'm learning more and more to how to do is to notice what I'm noticing and to recognize where the Spirit is at work and then to simply 
join him there and be his co-worker in what he's already doing. And so um, we've got a little bit of an audible um, this morning. We're still going to talk about love, but I, I want to um, talk more briefly on love and then jump into um, something that I think is just um, gravely important for us as followers of Jesus. That's been on my heart, and I feel with utmost conviction the Lord is saying, give your time and your giftings and your attention and your leadership to this issue. Let's first read from the, uh, the book of Galatians chapter 5. Um, and I'll give you just a quick summary on the lesson of love, and then we'll make it actionable, and then we'll close our time talking about how to be practical people of love in our world today. We have ample opportunity to do that. So if you have a Bible, let's turn to Galatians chapter 5. We're going to start in verse um, 6 and then jump to verse 13 through uh, 26. Uh, for context, remember that Paul's writing to the church in Galatia, and that some have come in after Paul to teach the Gentiles, the non-Jews, that in order to be in Christ, they needed to meet a flint rock in another room and go through the Jewish rite of circumcision. And uh, they basically had come in after Paul and said, the gospel is Jesus plus our traditions. And Paul is correcting this false gospel here. And he essentially says, and we can paraphrase him, that the gospel is Jesus plus nothing equals everything. And, uh, and then he kind of highlights the, the reality of what it looks like to walk in the Spirit versus walking in the flesh. And he's using that word flesh in relation to circumcision. It's a very vivid imagery. You should read Galatians and eat popcorn. It is fascinating literature, kind of what Paul does with his words here. So as we read through this uh, section of Galatians 5, I'd like to ask you to notice and to put on your radar any mention of love and in particular, any mention of love that is a neighbor love, that is a love in relation to others, okay? So Galatians 5 verse 6 says, For in Christ Jesus neither circumcision nor uncircumcision counts for anything, but only faith working through love. If you jump to verse 13 for the sake of time, he says, For you were called to freedom, brothers, only do not use your freedom as an opportunity for the flesh, but through love serve one another. For the whole law is fulfilled in one word. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. But if you bite and devour one another, watch out that you are not consumed by one another. But I say, walk by the Spirit, and you will not gratify the desires of the flesh. For the desires of the flesh are against the spirit, and the desires of the spirit are against the flesh. For these are opposed to each other to keep you from doing the things you want to do. But if you are led by the spirit, you are not under the law. Now, the works of the flesh are evident, sexual immorality, impurity, sensuality, idolatry, sorcery, enmity, strife, jealousy, fits of anger, rivalries, dissensions, divisions, envy, drunkenness, orgies, and things like these, I warn you, as I've warned you before, that those who do such things will not inherit the kingdom of God. But the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. Against such things there is no law. 
And those who belong to Christ and have crucified the flesh with its passions and desires. If we live by the Spirit, let us also walk by the Spirit or keep in step with the Spirit, as we talked about last week. Let us not become conceited, provoking one another, envying one another. This is the word of our Lord. Here's a quick summary on this sermon on love. Um, it's not that hard. We love because first, God loved us. There's really nothing you can do to just like muster up love. Um, we don't grow love. Love is not a work of our flesh. It is a fruit. It is a byproduct. It is an actionable reality that comes from having life in the Spirit. And if you have the Spirit, the Holy Spirit of Christ living inside of you, then you may choose to put that love into action. You may choose to practice and to work out the love that He is growing inside of you. You can also make the choice to hate. You can make the choice to have apathy. You can choose to not practice the love of God that has been planted in your heart. Uh, I could take you to many of the writings of John, either in his gospel, where he records Jesus giving the new commandment to um, love one another as he has loved, where he washes his disciples' feet. Um, I could take you to Matthew 22, where Jesus sums up the law and the prophets with the two commands to love God and love neighbor. I could take you to John's epistles, where he talks about laying our life down for others and loving in action, not just in words. I could take you to James as we have um, learned this summer. Um, but really, the only place I need to take you to is Romans 5, where it says, but God shows, or but God demonstrates his love for us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. While we were still sinners, while we were enemies of God, when we were of no use to him, God's love did something and he demonstrated, he showed the world, he showed us what his love is. Love is sacrificial. Love is not a feeling. Love is, at the most basic level, choosing the highest good of other people, no matter the cost to you. That's what love is. Jesus, of course, is our chief example of this type of love. And it's the type of love that the Spirit grows in our lives when he brings us to life and salvation, this is what we call true neighbor love. It's not a romantic love. It's not even a love that we would take vertically. It is uh, the fruit of the Spirit is a love that is horizontal, that is a love for others, love for neighbors, love for community, love for brothers and sisters in the household of faith, love of even enemies. That is a fruit that the Holy Spirit produces in us. When we love one another, especially those who are different than us, who, um, uh, who vote differently than us, we offer the world what some call practical proof that Jesus is alive, that Jesus is living and working inside of us because who else could love like that? Uh, we all have people in our life that are difficult for various reasons. Um, the question is, are you loving them in a way that would show the world that Jesus is truly alive inside of you? Think about that question. The, the difficult people in your life, the people you don't agree with, you don't vote like, the people that frustrate you, the people that get under your skin, the people who may be persecuting you, 
Do you love them with a love that only Jesus could grow inside of you? And are you aware that there are people watching you to see if you have that type of love? How do you know if a believer or a small group or a church or even a nation is alive? The answer is easy. You look for love. When you see sheep squabbling or disciples dividing and denouncing each other, you have tangible social evidence that someone has ceased to practice the self-giving neighbor love that the Spirit produces. The love from, from the Spirit is a love that crosses differences and barriers. It's a love that dissolves divisions. It's a love that brings people together who would otherwise hate and hurt and even kill one another. This love is a practical proof that Jesus is alive and has placed his Holy Spirit inside of us. This love is evident, as my pastor friend Lucy says. A fellow uh, pastor called me this week, and we were talking about his assignment. He's in um, uh, a church that um, has kind of lost their pastor, and it's in another part of the country. And this church is an old, established church, and he's kind of inherited these, these people that he's tested pastor and shepherd who have been in church their entire life. A lot of them are in their 60s and 70s, and, and they've been you know, doing Bible studies for 35, 40 years. And he was sharing with me his frustrations on um, this group of men that he's leading who um, know a lot about the Bible, but um, they don't know how to love. And he, uh, my, my friend was just lamenting to me. He's like, we owe people an apology because we have t told them that what they needed was to learn more information about God, that they needed to attend Bible study after Bible study. And kind of what we've done systemically is we have created people with really fat theological heads, but very small, unloving hearts. And he was just sharing like that he's refusing to do any more Bible studies with these people because they've had 30, 40 years of Bible study and they can't even love their neighbor. We don't need more Bible studies on love. I don't need to give you more sermons on love. What we need is to humble ourselves and surrender to God, to keep in step with his spirit and to welcome more of his love in our life, and to have the courage to put that love into action and to be like the Good Samaritan and to, um, to love not just in word, not just in doctrine, but to love in deed, to actually see people who are hurting and tend to them and to do something about it. That brings me to the primary thing that uh, God woke me up in the middle of the night and, um, and just convicted me to share um, early on in my pastoral training, I was taught that to be a successful pastor, uh, don't make people uncomfortable, don't talk about controversial issues, and above all, make Sunday positive, exciting, so that people will want more, and they'll come back next week. And, and I was literally told, every Sunday is the Super Bowl, so make it an unforgettable, positive experience. Score spiritual touchdowns. Literally, that is what was told to me as a young pastor. I don't know how you feel about that. And I don't know if that's even your expectation of our corporate worship or the expectation of our church or even if that's your expectation of me. But I totally disagree with that training. 
And of all days today, I break that training and I break that expectation. And if um, that expectation is when you have of me, um, I'm going to um, greatly disappoint you and most likely anger you. Um, I am not interested in being a successful pastor of a large church where people love me as I was instructed to as a young pastor. I am interested in being faithful to the way and the teachings of my Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ of Nazareth. I am interested in being a disciple or an apprentice underneath Jesus who is becoming a person full of more of his love, not less than his love. So my primary goal, my primary aim is to be faithful to my God, to be faithful to my shepherd, and to be faithful to the assignment he's given me. And that almost weekly leads me to um, instruct you and to share as, as a, quote, man of God or as a pastor or as a priest, as a professional you know, teacher of the scriptures, um, what I see in our world because it has huge ramifications for your life and our life and our church and our witness and for ultimately God's kingdom. Daily, I see evidence that our world has lost its mind and is far from the kingdom of God. I know you probably see it the same, um, especially when it comes to topics of, of race, of the image of God and others. And even right now, this week, what comes to the surface is the role that government and the role that police and the role of the rule of law and investigations and grand juries play in racial discrimination and racial inequality in the church. It is sometimes a mixed bag. Um, at times I see bright spots when I look at the church and I am deeply encouraged because I see parts of the church who, who um, seize the gospel and who are full of the, the boldness and the power and the courage of the Holy Spirit and they prophesy and they speak good news to those who are hurting. They also speak God's good news to people in power and systems of power and people who have um, authorized force of power. I'm also grieved and I also mourn when I see followers of Jesus who, for whatever reason, lack the skill or they lack the love or they lack the knowledge or they lack the education or they just lack the discipleship, to hear the cries of the oppressed and to hear the cries of people who are hurting. And I am grieved when I see those people almost reflexively side with a government or a politician or a policy um, without first thinking theologically on it. And often um, what we see today, many of the times, um, is is ungodliness and unholiness and, and unloving policies and, and dispositions all around kind of rule the day and rule the news cycle. And it can become easy to be informed by the news cycle or to be informed by um, a news outlet or to be informed by um, public opinion or to be informed by social media or whatever. And I am grieved because I see very few Christians um, being informed by the New Testament, specifically when it comes to a theology over how our government should be and how our government should exercise force in the form of policing 
Surprisingly, the scriptures have a lot to say about it, and most Christians are ignorant of it. I've heard from some Christians who are open and teachable and have come and have said, I'm brokenhearted, please help me think, speak, and act in a Christ-centered way, a spirit-filled way in this time. And that has been so um, life-giving to me and encouraging to me as a pastor that, that there are people um, in the church, in our church, who can see past partisanship, how they can see, see past the new cycle. They can see past that and they can go, what is God's heart? Um, that is so encouraging to me. And if that's you, I encourage you, keep that up. God is present in the pain. God is present in the disruption. God is alive. His sleeves are rolled up like mine. He um, is doing something right now. And I believe with all my heart, he's calling his church in this pandemic to join him in the mess of mission. There's a couple of things that I think are non-negotiable and that should be obvious. And... Um, I shouldn't have to say them, but we live in a day where I must say them, and we must all get on the same page if we are to um, be a gospel-centered community together. The first is that in God's kingdom and in God's economy, the proud and the abusive are always humbled, and on the other hand, the oppressed and the afflicted and the hurting and the brokenhearted are lifted up. If the Bible is a sponge and you were to take this and you were to wring it out like a sponge, the first thing that would come out of it is that God opposes the proud and he gives grace to the humble. That God opposes those who use their power, especially over society, to inflict harm on people and who aren't accountable for it. And God raises people like Moses up to say, let my people go. God sends the 10 plagues to the nation of Egypt to set people free. God is very, very concerned with um, lifting up um, the, the, the lives and the dignity of those who are oppressed and afflicted. This is the story of our God that we serve. And it's not just a story in the Old Testament. It is from cover to cover, the pattern and the life, especially of Jesus, our Lord and our Savior. Uh, the psalmist says that God is near to the brokenhearted. Um, the prophet Isaiah says a bruised reed he will not break. Um, Galatians 6 says that God is not mocked. A man will reap what he sows, which is Paul's way of saying God is watching. He sees all. He keeps really good records. And these messages are important for us to remember as followers of Jesus on a personal level, but also on a corporate level and in a society level. It is our call and our responsibility as image bearers of God, as co-laborers with God, as citizens of the kingdom of heaven on the mission field in America to remind our culture and to remind our society and to remind our government and to remind the police and to remind courts that our God is of all a God of justice and that he is a giver of life and that this God who gave one of the Ten Commandments, thou shalt not kill, this giver of life, this God of justice is watching. Fundamentally, as Christians, this is what it means for us to be salt and light 
in the world. The scriptures teach us to rejoice with those who rejoice, which is really fun. I love rejoicing. Joy is like my favorite fruit of the Spirit. The scriptures also teach us to mourn with those who mourn and to weep with those who weep. The events of this week um, have no doubt been devastating on our black brothers and sisters. Now, there's so much uh, complexity and there's so much conflicting information out there on this case with, with Breonna Taylor and the grand jury. I'm not interested in getting into the weeds of like, was there a no-knock warrant or not and all this. There's so much information that, that is still coming out and I, I'm not interested in like getting into what was right in this thing. All I'm saying is our nation has a problem. It has had a problem. We continue to have a problem. And many people who are a part of the problem don't want to acknowledge that they are a part of the problem. And there are communities of people that God died for who are hurting and who are crying for help. And as if the injury and pain wasn't enough, I'm grieved and I lament uh, the comments, the, the communication that our government gives, our systems of law give, that people and culture on social media give. And I'm not on social media because I care about my mental and emotional health, but I imagine it's a dumpster fire. As if the, the, uh, the injury wasn't enough of Breonna Taylor's death and, and what that symbolizes. Um, how our, uh, our, our public and our nation, our community, how we can't even talk about it and work towards a solution, um, especially for those who don't see the problem, adds insult to the injury. And, and just as a shepherd, as a pastor, as a priest, on the most basic level, so much of what I see and what I hear and what I witness is ungodly, it's unholy, and it's unloving, and I believe it breaks God's heart. I believe God's heart is broken over the events of Kentucky, and ours should be too, and if your heart isn't broken, you've got some questions to answer. And it should go without saying, but I have to say it. As the grand jury decision in the Breonna Taylor case came out, um, amidst my anger and sadness, um, I couldn't help but think of the biblical account of Cain and Abel. Now, um, just to be straight with you, I, um, my temptation is when something in, in culture happened that's kind of big like this, my, my temptation is to like figure out, okay, what are all the news outlets saying? What's social media saying? What are these people saying? And, then, and very quickly you start to form these camps and you start to get into these, um, these cultural wars. And what I've learned to do has been to, um, to refrain from doing that and to step back and to pray and to say, Jesus, what are you doing? Where are you, Lord? What are you saying and how do I join that? Because Jesus is alive and he's working and he's present and he's often in the pain. And as I do that, what, what's been fascinating is almost every time he brings to me 
the story of Cain and Abel. And as I've talked to other followers of Jesus, we have this practice of, of not um, consuming social media like, like this and, and, and refusing to get in the mud on the partisan politics of this and refuse to get into the rivalries and divisions, but to be informed, but to pray and to think theologically and reflect theologically first and then speak and then act. Um, almost all of them say, man, I can't get away from Cain and Abel. It's been really incredible to see how the Spirit keeps speaking to many of us over Cain and Abel repeatedly. Uh, Cain, instead of being like God, who is a giver of life, he did an ungodly thing and he became a taker of life. And God comes to him and says, the, the blood of your brother is calling out to you from the ground. I mean, think of how huge that is, that God would say, the blood of your brother is speaking to you. Do you hear it? In a similar fashion, I hear the blood of our sister, Brianna. I don't know if she was a believer or not, but she's a fellow human being. I hear her blood calling to us from the ground, just like Cain heard Abel's blood. And I pray that you, God's people, purchased with his shed blood, can hear her blood and the blood of others calling to the church. The one organization on this earth that exists for the benefit of those who aren't members. Do you hear her blood calling to you? To see and to mourn the ungodliness is at work in our society and in our systems. We must pray. We must long for God's kingdom of shalom to come to this earth. We must put our love into action and figure out tangible ways to love our neighbors of color. And if you don't know how to do that, perhaps you can start with the three L's of listening, lamenting, and learning. Listen instead of speaking, lament instead of engaging in partisan politics, learn, take the posture of a learner instead of coming to these um, conversations, believing you know it all and have all the answers because you don't. I don't either. Now, as if, I've already op as if I haven't opened a can of worms, let's, let's open one. Uh, we need to talk theologically and biblically about government, law, and the police, and the enforcement of law through the police. There's so many ideas around here floating around from defund the police to other things, and there, um, one, uh, is very few helpful conversations that I have come across going on um, regarding this, and it's become a taboo radioactive topic, and I, your, your heart's probably beating fast already, the fact that I've mentioned this. Um, but this topic for Christians is important because it's front and center in the cultural moment we are now in. And sadly, I hear very little talk and opinions that line up with the New Testament's teaching on the view of government and the view of policing. It actually says quite a bit. Sadly, I'm sickened when I hear Christians who profess to follow Jesus, who say things, who believe things, and who go to war over things that just aren't biblical. 
if you don't know who uh, Esau Macaulay is, I want to introduce you to him. Uh, he's a black Anglican uh, scholar and theologian. He is a true gift to um, the church right now. He just wrote, wrote a book called uh, Reading While Black. It is the, uh, the number one book on Amazon right now in its category for good reason. It's um, primarily about um, reading the scriptures from a black point of view. Um, surprisingly, or not surprisingly, there are very few books and resources out on this. For example, last year in 2019, uh, Dr. Tony Evans published a, um, a commentary on the Bible from Genesis Revelation, and I bought it. And I found out after buying it, and I thought this was a lie, but it's true, that Dr. Evans' commentary it produced last year was the first Bible commentary in, in entirety to be published by an African-American. We've gone 2,000 years since Christ, and just last year was a full biblical commentary and also a study Bible produced by an African-American. You may not care about theology or you may not read books like that. It's huge, okay? And uh, this book by Dr. McCauley, Reading My Black, I believe it's a must read. I'm reading through it right now. And I strongly feel it should be required reading of every follower of Jesus. Otherwise, we are missing out on an entire perspective of the Holy Scriptures that we have so many um, colorings of and assumptions of. Now, in chapter two, two chapters in, Dr. McCauley unpacks the New Testament's teaching on policing and systems of power. And there are a lot of opinions and there are a lot of conversations about policing going on and there are a lot of people who used to work for the police or used to be a cop or, or who are a soldier or in the military and it's been a really interesting to have conversations with people who are Christians but then have been a part of the system and to see the wrestling that they have, rightly so, with this. Um, but I have heard almost nobody speak about police and government and enforcing law from a New Testament perspective. I hear a lot of opinions. I hear a lot of anger. I hear almost nobody speak to it theologically from our holy scriptures. Esau is the first that I've come across to do so. And it is convicting. It is scandalous. You won't like it, most likely. Some of you might actually be comforted by it. But it is an incredible resource. Highly recommend um, that you pick it up and learn um, the way of Jesus from our brother here. Um, if you don't know what the New Testament says about police or about soldiers using the sword, I'll put it in, in that context of Rome, um, I offer no judgment or shame on you. But what I want to extend to you is, is the fact that I love you. And um, there is just too much at stake to allow you to remain in the dark and to use maybe an offensive word, to remain ignorant on what the scriptures say about police and government, especially on populations that are poor and on the underside of privilege and uh, bad situations. Um, we have a lot to learn on this issue and a lot to theologically study on this issue. And if you haven't thought about it, I implore you for the sake of God to think about it, 
to pray through it, to wrestle through it, to become a learner because lives are at stake. I know friends of color who this week couldn't even talk because of the tears and the fear that it could have been them or they could be next. There is life at stake and I'm pro-life. I am pro the sanctity of all lives from the womb to the tomb as a follower of Jesus. I will always be pro-life. And because I'm pro-life, I believe that black lives matter and also the lives of people in uniforms who are supposed to be protecting and serving us matter and the life of uh, a refugee or an immigrant matters or the life of a child or the life of a widow or the life of someone with COVID or the life of someone who has uh, Asperger's or uh, you get all lives are, are sacred because we are made in the image of God. They matter. And this is a huge gospel issue for Christians who believe that God is the giver of life and that we are made in the image of God. Not only are lives at stake, but also what's at stake is your witness to your world about Christ and his kingdom. Do you know and understand that there are people who don't know Jesus who are looking at you and they're making conclusions about the God that you worship based on your disposition to the hurting and those who are crying out for freedom and for equality and who have been oppressed for far too long. I want to uh, read just the last page of chapter two of this book. It is actually pretty hopeful. It's very instructive, and no doubt it will be convicting. Welcome to church. You should know me by now. The last page of this chapter on um, a theology of, of policing from the New Testament says, as Christians, it is part of our calling to remind those charged with governing of their need to create an atmosphere in which people are able to live without fear. This has been the black person's repeated lament. We should not live in fear. Good should be rewarded and evil punished. The United States, historically and in the present, has not done that. Instead, it has used the sword to instill a fear that has been passed down from generation to generation in black homes and in black churches. But that fear has never had the final word. Instead, black Christians remembered that we need not fear those who can only kill the body. At our best and most Christian moments, we have demanded our birthrights as children of God. But that right should not be purchased at the price of our blood or mental health. A Christian theology of policing, then, is a theology of freedom. If Paul spoke to the power of the state and the sword, John the Baptist turned his eye towards the individual soldier. He called them not to heroic feats of physical bravery, but to heroic virtue. He reminded them that their power need not turn them into villains who exploit. They could become champions for the weak. A Christian theology of policing, then, looks to the state 
and cause it to remember its duties. It looks to the officer and demands that said officer recognize the tremendous responsibility and potential of the work that they do. If we undertake this task of calling on the officer and the state to be what God has called them to be, then maybe the hopes of black folks as they relate to the police in this country may be fulfilled. I know that I have most likely pushed a lot of your buttons. Maybe for some of you, I have encouraged you and given you hope in Jesus and his gospel and his people. For some of you, I have not stepped on your toes. I've trampled on your feet. But more than anything, because of the gospel that we are, that we are centered on, I plead with you, if you are a follower of Jesus Christ, the resurrected son of the living God, filled with the Holy Spirit. When it comes to the black community and all communities of color, when it comes to even discussions on how we are governed as a society, I implore you and I admonish you and I exhort you to first above everything, lead with a humble spirit produced love for your neighbor have a gracious curiosity that seeks to bind the wounds of those who are hurting and weeping and crying and lamenting. Lead with love, not with judgment. Lead with love, not with shame. Lead with love, not with simple answers to the problem. Lead with love because the giver of life is watching. And so is our hurting and broken world. Let us pray. Heavenly Father, our Abba Father, our Daddy, we yelp to you and we cry to you for help. Help us to live in your presence and to live in your approval of us more and more. We ask you to give us eyes to see people communities, situations, as you see them. Father, break our hearts for what breaks yours. And Lord Jesus, we repent of our sin, both individually and collectively. We take up our cross and we follow you. We cast our burdens down before you, our fears, our anxieties, our worries, our anger, our sadness, our tears. And we take up your yoke that is easy and that is full of rest for our souls. We welcome you as the great shepherd of our souls to come and be our leader, to be our king. Come, Lord Jesus, have mercy on us. Have mercy on our nation. Have mercy on our government. Have mercy on Kentucky. Holy Spirit, come. We welcome you. Comfort us. Tend to our wounds. Tend to our fears and our anger and our sadness. We ask for you to fill us with yourself and cause your fruit to ripen in our lives. More love, more joy, more peace, more patience, more kindness, more goodness to our neighbors.
more faithfulness, more gentleness, more self-control. God, make us a people of your love. And may the world see that we are indeed your disciples because of our neighbor love, our self-sacrificing love for one another. It's in the name of Jesus we pray. Amen.